I'll invite those who remain to find John chapter 13 in your Bibles. As you're finding John chapter 13, I want you to consider something. Jesus's original disciples followed him literally. They literally, physically left their jobs, left their families, and on foot followed Jesus as he walked around teaching and preaching and healing people. Now, after Jesus died and was buried and rose again, he ascended into heaven. He's not here physically any longer. So we can't literally follow Jesus. When we speak of following Jesus, we can't do it literally. It's not the same call to literally leave our jobs, leave our families, leave our homes, and walk somewhere or drive somewhere. But we are still called to follow Jesus. That's at the heart of what it means to be a disciple is to be a follower of someone. So what does it mean really to follow Jesus now in the in-between time, after he has ascended, before he returns? This is at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. So we really can't afford to be vague about it. So what does it mean to follow Jesus if we can't do it literally? In John chapter 13, Jesus' disciples are wrestling with this because he's telling them goodbye. In John chapter 13, we see him in the upper room with his disciples who have followed him physically, geographically for three years. And he's saying, it's time for me to go and where I'm going, you can't follow me anymore. And in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16 even, you see the disciples wrestling with this. What do you mean? And we're going to focus on John 13, verses 31 through 35 this morning, but it really carries through all those chapters. I'll invite you to read with me and follow along in your Bible or on the wall. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. That is some confusing syntax there, but basically, glory is about to happen. It's upon us. Glory. Jesus is going to be glorified. The Father is going to be glorified. The Father's going to be glorified in Jesus. Jesus is going to be glorified in the Father. I'm sure the disciples probably had the same thoughts that you might if you're really trying to engage with this. What? Just for now, just suffice to say, glory is about to happen. We know in hindsight that he's referring to his crucifixion, his burial, and his glorious resurrection. But they didn't understand that at this point. So just follow along with them here. Verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you. Where I am going, you cannot come. You've followed me for three years. Everywhere I've gone, you've gone. You obediently left your boats, your businesses, your fathers, your uh, Matthew, the tax collector, or Levi left his tax booth with money still sitting on it. 
and you followed me and we've walked through the heat and the dust and we've, um, we've seen paralytics healed together. We've seen uh, demon-possessed people freed. You've heard me teach. You've gone everywhere with me. But where I'm going now, you can't follow. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, I remember being at a church, my home church, Trinity Baptist Church in Monroe. Um, I wasn't a youth anymore, but I was kind of involved in the youth ministry as a teacher. And I remember when the current youth pastor announced that he was leaving, he was resigning. He had been there about three years. And in a teenager's life, three years is a long time because three years in your early teens or your middle teens, a lot happens. And this youth pastor had been a good youth pastor. And he had been with them, but but just for three years. And he didn't tell them before he announced to the congregation that he was resigning. And I still don't know why he did it that way. I'm sure he was a good guy. I'm sure there was a reason for it. But I sat right behind the youth group and you could just feel I couldn't even see their faces, but you could feel the wave of just shock wash over them. What? He's leaving. What do we do now? And you sense that here as Jesus tells them that he's leaving. I mean, he's told them before. This isn't the first time he's told them what's going to be happening. But they just, you know, they didn't understand it. He's leaving. And I want you to notice how how tender he is with them in verse 33. He calls them little children. And I imagine he probably said that because he saw their faces and he probably saw the looks on their faces. Just this sick look of, what do you mean? What do you mean you're leaving? How do we follow you now? What do we do now? He says, little children. Where I'm going, you cannot come. I want you to read a little further than what I read and look at how Peter responds. I don't have this on the screen so you can listen or follow in your Bible. You know, Peter was always the most boisterous of the disciples. He always had the strongest reactions whenever anything was going on. He's the first one to speak up. In verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. It's like when you're trying to leave the house and the dog is following behind you and you're like, go home. You can't follow me. I've got to go. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow after. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And of course, Jesus knows that Peter's saying that now, but in just a few hours, he's going to deny him. Not once, not twice, but thrice. And he tells them that. But the point is, Peter, it just doesn't get it. I want to follow you. I've always followed you. Why can't I come with you? What will we do now? In answer to that question that Jesus surely saw in his disciples' face, he gives them what he calls a new commandment. Back in verse 34. Right after he says, where I'm going, you cannot come, at the end of verse 33, he immediately says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, think with me for a minute. Love one another. Was that a new commandment? Was that a novel idea? Love one another? How was that new? That had been around for generations, not even just in in the Jewish moral code. Love one another. The fact is, nobody really knows why Jesus called this a new commandment, because he doesn't explain himself. Uh, But I came across several theories. I'm not going to share them all with you. I'm going to share with you one that I think may be at the heart of it. Um, I think he's calling this a new commandment because it's not because it's literally new, not because it's the first time anyone knew that God wanted us to love one another. I think he's calling it a new commandment because it's shifting the focus from some old commandment to this commandment as the new focus. It's not that it's a new commandment, it's that it's the new focus now. So remember how Jesus called his disciples, sort of the first commandment that they received from him. Do you remember what it was? He looks out and he sees them in the boat. Follow me. So that was sort of the initial command. Follow me. I'll read it to you. Back in Matthew chapter 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So this is, picture you're at work. Picture whatever the trappings are, your surroundings at work. And some guy opens the door, pokes his head in and says, hey, follow me. And you put down the phone or whatever it is. You get up from your desk and you just leave it all and follow him. That's how it began for Jesus' disciples. Just the simple call, leave it, follow me. And they did. And that had sort of been the banner over their experience of Jesus following him everywhere he went. But now he's going someplace that they can't follow anymore. So what are they going to do now? Well, now he says, well, a new commandment I'm going to give to you. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. He's shifting their focus from following Jesus' physical body everywhere it went to the physical bodies of the disciples around them to love one another. It's not that they would no longer be Jesus followers, and it's not that loving one another was a new idea, it's that their focus would shift. They would follow Jesus now primarily by loving one another. Now a new age was coming, a new age was here. And to follow Jesus now means primarily to love one another within the church, within the body of Christ. Just listen to Jesus as this passage goes on back in John 13, as he repeatedly tries to direct his disciples to what he wants them to be focused on now that he's leaving. He says in chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
And then on in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Well, what is your commandment? What is your word? In 1512, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then on in verse 17 of chapter 15, these things I command you so that you will love one another. All through these chapters where he's trying to leave and trying to console his disciples and direct them to the next step, all through he's reminding them, I want you to love one another. Now that I'm leaving, focus on loving one another. Maybe they were just having a bad day. I don't know if you have kids who have had a bad day and they were bickering a lot. And maybe on that day you were focusing a lot on love one another. So maybe the disciples had just had a bad day. They were hot and tired and hungry and they were just fighting a lot. And Jesus is saying, will you guys just get along? I have to go and I want you guys to just love one another. Maybe that's what was going on. But I think it's more than that. I think this is bigger than that. I was at a wedding yesterday. Elizabeth Burleson got married. Many of you remember the Burlesons and know them well. And um, the Scott Carpenter was doing the ceremony, and he read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is very commonly read at weddings, a beautiful passage describing what love is. And it reminded me of just how vital love is in Christianity. It's not, it's not a sentimental, nice idea. It is crucial to everything Christian. So listen again, it's a familiar passage, but listen to 1 Corinthians 13, the first three verses. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. If we don't have love, it renders every other act of devotion or ministry completely worthless. Even the most fantastic. The very best, most eloquent sermon preached in the the most awesome sanctuary, broadcast with the best technology to the most people, done without love, is worthless. Faith to to walk, to to go and and look at Mara Mountain and have it move over to Center Charlotte. What an astounding act of faith is worthless without love. Love is so core and central to Christianity that it, if without it, it renders everything worthless. It's also more enduring than any other act of devotion or ministry. He goes on to say in verse 8, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, but these three, the greatest of these is love. It sounds so cliche to talk about love this way, but... It's, it's all about love. It's, 
It has to be all about love. If we're going to follow Jesus, it has to be all about love, specifically loving one another within the church. I'm trying to think of an illustration for what I'm getting at here. I obviously thought about ice cream, um, as I typically am. I've always liked ice cream that is chocolate-based. Meredith, I think when we got married, it's accurate to say, you preferred ice cream that was vanilla-based. And then she grew to the dark side, I guess, to like chocolate that is, I mean, ice cream that is chocolate-based. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can get all varieties of different sorts of ice creams with different ingredients mixed in. You can get the um, uh, Food Line brand uh, moose tracks is really, really good if you've never tried it. And you can get the same moose tracks, the same fudge and those little chocolate peanut butter things. You can get it with that stuff mixed into either vanilla base or chocolate base. Chocolate base is better, obviously. Now, love in Christianity is sort of like that. Everything has to have love as its base. You can mix in preaching, teaching, church programs, missions, trips, outreach, whatever you want to mix in under, you know, that's scripturally okay. But if it's not mixed into that love base, if it's mixed into any other base, it's garbage. If it's mixed into a pride base that says we want to build up Doolin's Grove so that we look awesome, that carton of ministry is worthless. It's got to be mixed into the love base. It's the only thing that has any value. So as cliche as it sounds, and I don't want you to, to just sort of glaze over and phase out because I'm talking about loving one another. What lesson has a Christian heard more often than that? But we need to understand how dramatically central this is. As Jesus was leaving his disciples, this was his message. Really, the one central thing he wanted them to do as he left was love one another. You know, of those disciples sitting there, one of them was closer to Jesus than any of the others. And that was John. John was his beloved disciple. John was the one sitting right next to Jesus. And John wrote this biography of Jesus that we're reading here in John chapter 13. He also wrote a couple of letters later in the New Testament. And I want to read to you a couple of things he said. Just to prove to you that now I really believe following Jesus is primarily done by loving one another within the church. I don't know why I'm flipping. I have it in my notes. I'll read to you 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. John writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. Listen to his sort of confusion over whether it's a new commandment or an old commandment. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, referring to Jesus, and you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light already is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So that's a complicated passage and it needs to be untangled. But basically he's reminding them of this new commandment. He goes on to say in 1 John three eleven, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then on in 
1 John 3, 23 through 24. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. All through 1 John, written by John, who was so close to Jesus here in what we read in John chapter 13, he's saying over and over again, love one another. And he presents loving one another as the test to know if you truly are a Christian. As the test to know if God truly abides in you and if you truly are abiding in God. Whether or not you love one another within the church. One more from 1 John 4, 7-8. through 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God. And knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. It's so central. If, if you can do your Christianity without, in very real practical ways, loving, serving fellow Christians, you're not doing Christianity at all. This is Christianity. Finally, back to our original passage. I'll close with his last word there in 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What makes a church identifiable as a church? How do you know when it's a church? Is it the sort of building that they meet in because it has a cross on the top? Is it the sort of clean-cut look of the people? Ron and I were talking. or No, no it wasn't you. It was Glennon. Uh, Glennon Balser was telling me that he's had people that he never met, just look at him and say, you're a preacher, aren't you? It's because he has a preacherly look about him, he says. Do Christians just have a look about them? Can you tell? Is it how clean we keep our cars and the Jesus fish on the back? Is it the activities that we're involved in? Is it the Bible in the dash of our truck? Jesus is saying the identifying mark of the church, of disciples, of followers is that they love one another. That's the identifier. If we don't have that, no matter what other Christianly things we do, we don't even look like Christians. We don't even look like followers of Jesus. We don't even look like disciples. We don't even look like a church. Now, I'll tell you how I came by deciding to preach this passage. You know, we just finished Hebrews, and I'm very comfortable when I'm working through a book And when I get outside of a book, I get really uneasy and it's really difficult for me to know what to preach. And so I was praying and praying and praying about what to preach now that we're out of Hebrews. I know what I'm going to do in October. I feel like the Lord's given me that. But what am I going to do in September? And so I probably wrote six different sermons in preparation for this Sunday and just could not get settled on them. And part of my thinking was, you know, I I have a kind of a limited, but a marketing background. That's the world I was in before I became a pastor. I was doing marketing for a little small business and I had worked as a a lowly sort of a secretary kind of guy at a PR firm before that. And then I had sales in my background prior to that. Um, And I have that thinking in me and that thinking makes me think we need a tagline as a church. 
And we live in a marketing age, which tells us we need these things too. So, you know, what, what we have right now is that we're Doolin's Grove and it's all about loving God and loving people by making disciples. And I like the little equation of it. Love God plus love people equals make disciples. And I've told you guys all about that. But I thought, you know, that's really not very clear. What does that even mean? Like, what does that look like? So I was thinking, well, maybe I need to rethink our tagline <laughs> and come up with something that's just crystal clear that every, every one of us can carry with us everywhere we go and know exactly what it means. And so I'm praying through that and I'm doing my normal devotional reading. And I think, well, really it all boils down to following Jesus together. Maybe that'd be a better tagline. By the way, taglines don't mean anything. It doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter at all. Nowhere in the New Testament are we even told to name ourselves. There, there was no church in the New Testament that had a snappy name. Okay, there's just the church, it was just the Christians who met in this city and the Christians that met in that city. It wasn't the, the new life flowing river of awesomeness church here. It was just the Christians in that locale. So anyway, and I'm thinking through, okay, well, that sounds pretty good, following Jesus together. It sounds so silly when you talk it out out loud. I'm like, well, what does that mean exactly? Because I want it to be something that we understand, that we can carry with us and know exactly what it means. So what does it look like to follow Jesus together? And I don't like to just come up with things from myself. I wanted to find scriptural roots for, well, what does it mean to follow Jesus? So then I start to look up everywhere where you see follow, follow me, you know, everywhere where the Bible talks specifically about following Jesus. This is more of a glimpse into my psyche than any of you signed up for this morning. And so Jesus, when he was first on the scene, he invited his disciples to follow him. And it was so literal Get out of your boat. Come, come with me. And then he said a lot of hard things about how you're going to need to take up your cross daily and follow me. You have to die to yourself and follow me. And that's all applicable for us. But the, the crystal clarity of what it meant to follow Jesus sort of hits a bit of a dead end when Jesus leaves physically. And you really don't see the Bible use following language anymore once you get into the epistles that much. It's kind of assumed, but it's just not the way the Christians talk about it as much. Instead, you get this rich and varied portrait of a life of a believer and follower of Christ. And it, it just incorporates in a billion different ways. So then I thought, well, following Jesus together, really, I just don't know that that's clear enough. And so it was as I was tracing what it looked like to follow Jesus through the gospels into the epistles and then back again that I came to this passage in 13 and I saw, well, right here, they're in the exact same predicament that I'm in, trying to figure out exactly, exactly what does it mean to follow Jesus. Because with the important things in life, we want things to be concrete and clear. We don't want vagueness when it comes to the most essential thing in life. And what I see here is somewhat surprising to me. That here, as Jesus is leaving physically, his statement of what it now is going to look like to be a disciple, a follower, is primarily to love one another within the church. So for the next several weeks through September, I'm going to continue to go spelunking into this cave of figuring out exactly, exactly, exactly what does it mean to follow Jesus by loving one another in the church. I think it's going to correspond really well with this community revival focus we're going to have um, the next three Sunday evenings. I really do not have any application points for you this morning. I just want you to consider these things. 
I want you to consider afresh how central loving one another in the church is to following Jesus. And I want you to come back next week and bring like 10 people with you. I want to see all the pews filled up. That'd be, that was great when Natalie was baptized and all the pews were filled up. Just bring all the brooks. Tell them we're going to re-baptize Natalie next week and we'll have that whole side full. Come back. I don't have an application for you. I have an invitation. Let's follow Jesus together, but let's really look at what that means. And in the coming weeks, I think we're going to see in very practical and very real and very concrete terms what it looks like to follow Jesus together now in the meantime after he has ascended, before he returns, by loving one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that it is always surprising to me, and it's deeper than I ever anticipate. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would iron out any wrinkles in what I've said in the hearts of of us all, and that you would let your invitation ring in our ears to follow Jesus, but that you would not leave us in a vague place of an over-mystified idea of what that means, but that we would know down literally in a concrete way to the everyday living what this glorious calling is that you've given us. And we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for his life and his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection. We thank you that in him we are forgiven and cleansed and given new life and acceptance into your family based on no merit of our own. And now please teach us how to live the new life together. In Jesus' name, amen.